Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Today is week three in an initiative that we're calling First Allegiance. And the point of this thing is really to help us as a congregation of Christians, um, help us avoid falling into the traps of cultural and political polarization and divisiveness. This is obviously a very heated and charged time in our city, county, state, uh, country. And um, our hope is not to run away from it all, but to be able to actively participate in the life of our city and the life of our nation, um, but as those whose first allegiance is to Jesus himself. And so we love our country, we're grateful for the chance we have uh, to live here, but our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And so our first allegiance initiative is really about during this 2020 election season, for the eight Sundays leading up to election week and the two Sundays afterwards, that we are essentially launching our own campaign, but it's a campaign for Jesus to be the king of our entire lives. And so we understand that Jesus has given us a vision to live all of our life, including our politics and our political engagement. Um, And that all of these things are to revolve around the two commands that are most important to him, that we are people that are learning how to love God and learning how to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so each Sunday during this initiative, we're walking through um, passages in the Gospels, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus that show us what it means to pledge our allegiance to him, first and foremost, in all of life. Secondly, we're engaging in online forums. We're going to have three or four of them over the next couple months. The first one is tonight, 6.30 on Zoom, and we have a special guest with us by the name of Michael Ware, who's a former White House staff member, who's also behind this thing called the And Campaign, who has a really brilliant and helpful vision for what it looks like for Christians to engage in politics and in the political process in a way that is an expression of our love for God and love for neighbors. And so I really want to encourage you tonight at 6.30 to get online, and the whole point of these forums is to hear a little bit of content, but it's not a lecture, it's some kind of prompts and some thoughts, and then we're actually going to break out into discussion groups in Zoom with several other people, and the idea is to have conversations, and we're going to help you do that with some kind of guidelines and some ideas that will help shape the way we can relate to one another without getting defensive, without saying things we regret, um, without demonizing those who think differently, believe differently, live differently, or vote differently than we do on various topics. And we feel like the church is a great place to test out these theories, 
right? That if we can't have civil uh, political dialogue amongst ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, then, then nobody can. And we're, we're hopeful that we can learn how to do that well. So tonight, 6.30, Michael Ware uh, from Washington, D.C. with us on Zoom. Uh, thirdly, we're inviting you to fast and to pray during these couple months, and specifically to set aside Tuesdays as a day um, to set our hearts on God, to give up something to create space from, for, in your life to pray and to call your attention to Jesus. And uh, we have prayer books available to help you uh, guide those, those times of prayer and fasting. And then finally, as Amy mentioned, we have this commitment over here uh, on my right. And we are inviting the congregation to sign their names onto this 10-point covenant that basically is saying, here is our commitment before God, before one another, um, to engage in this season as those whose first allegiance is pledged to Christ. And I want to run through them really quickly, these 10 commitments, one more time, so that today, as we close, uh, if you haven't yet had the chance, that you can come and sign your name to this covenant. The 10 commitments are this, worship. I commit my allegiance to King Jesus over all other idols and ideologies. Two, love of neighbor. I commit to participating in civic life as a means of loving and serving my neighbor rather than just serving my own interests. Number three, image of God. I commit to honoring the image of God in all people by treating them with respect and abstaining from dehumanizing caricatures. Number four, biblical wisdom. I commit to having my views challenged by the biblical story rather than using the Bible to proof text my predetermined positions. Number five, fruitful speech. I commit to engaging in political discourse with speech that's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Number six, humble learning. I commit to being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger as I seek to learn from the varied perspectives within the body of Christ. Number seven, remove the log. I commit to giving more attention to critiquing the potential flaws in my own political leanings, conduct, and sin than I give to scrutinizing others. Number eight, biblical justice. I commit to understanding and pursuing justice as I engage in civic life, not minimizing scripture's repeated call to seek justice and allowing scripture to critique popular conceptions of justice in our culture. Number nine, peacemaking. I commit to face-to-face conflict resolution rather than dumb arguments on social media. It doesn't say dumb. I just added that, but you know it's true. Number 10, loving enemies. I commit to loving and praying for my so-called political enemies, especially those whom I have the hardest time loving and praying for. This includes a commitment to pray for our government leaders, regardless of who wins the election. And then finally, at the bottom of the document, it's this commitment. During this election season, I commit to following Jesus in my political participation and discourse. While I know I cannot perfectly live out this vision, I am committed to growing in these areas as a means of loving God and my neighbors during these conflicted times.
Okay, so that is the first allegiance commitment, and uh, it will be up here every week as we gather um, for the next uh, seven or eight weeks, and you are free to sign it at any time, uh, any Sunday, but today would be a great time if you haven't yet uh, to come, and we have Sharpies up here, and uh, we would invite you to sign your name as an act of devotion to God and solidarity with his church and his mission in the world. So that's the first allegiance commitment. Uh, one last thing before we dive into today's sermon. 13 years ago today, I became a father for the first time, which means that today I become the father of a teenager. Emma Grace Kelly is 13 today. And uh, because of COVID, we couldn't really have the normal party. So this is Emma's birthday party. And she is uh, thankful for all of you guys coming. <laughs> um, on that note, while, while we're talking about the image of God today, um, I want to argue that celebrating birthdays is a great way for Christians to live out our belief that every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. Um, Henry Nouwen, if you know the famous uh, Dutch priest and theologian who at one point gave up a prestigious professorship at Harvard to go and live in a community with people who had profound developmental disabilities. Uh, Nouwen wrote this, I think it's more important to celebrate a birthday than a successful exam, a promotion, or a victory. Because to celebrate a birthday is to say to someone, thank you for being you. On a birthday, we do not say thanks for what you did or said or accomplished. No, we say thank you for being born and for being among us. We love you because you are you. I love that. And so, Emma, I want to take this moment to say that mom and I love you so much, and I love being your dad. I love who you are and who you're becoming, and I am so proud of you. And if I could line up all the 13-year-olds in the world and choose one to be mine, I would choose you every single time. You bring so much joy to our family and to the world. You are my daughter who I love, and I am so pleased with you. Happy birthday. <laughs> Today we're going to focus our attention on the third of our ten commitments in the First Allegiance Initiative, and that is our commitment to the image of God. That throughout um, these several months, before, during, and after the election, that we would live deeply into this Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei, the belief that every single human life bears the image and likeness of God. And therefore, every single human life has a rock-solid, irreducible glory, value, and significance. Several months ago, when we were going through some classic stories in the Old Testament, when we were looking at the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, you'll remember that it says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
And so this doctrine, beginning in Genesis 1 and all throughout the scriptures, is why Christians have always been able to say with a grounding reality that no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, your life is valuable, that you matter. And if you think about in Jesus' teachings, he never explicitly uses the phrase image of God, but it's often assumed. It is part of his theology, if you will, and oftentimes in his teaching, he assumes that his Jewish audience understands and holds to this concept of Imago Dei, and so he teaches from that place. And so in the passage that Pat read for us, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. And in two or three different occasions, Jesus assures his hearers that they don't have to be given over to the anxiety of those around them. That they can live their lives with a solid, abiding confidence, sense of belonging, identity, and security. Why? Because their heavenly Father knows them, loves them, and cares for them. And specifically in verse 26, or 36, 26 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So interesting. Don't miss that, first of all, Jesus is saying, look at the birds. Later on, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the beauty of all the non-human parts of God's creation. We live in one of the best places on the planet to enjoy God's handiwork in plants and in animals and in nature. And Jesus says, you can learn something about God by looking at his artwork, looking at his creation. And when you see how God loves the birds of the air, how God cares for them, how God has provided for them and creates a world where they are free to be who they're created to be, God says, Jesus says, if God loves birds like that, how much more does he love you? Now, why would Jesus assume that God loves me more than a bird? He does love birds, but Jesus is basing this teaching on the assumption of the doctrine of Imago Dei. Why would God love me more than he loves a bird? Because I'm a human. And out of all the wonderful, glorious parts of God's creation, human beings are the only thing that are made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, God has a special love, a special devotion, a special commitment to every single human. Nicholas Walderstorff, who's, the, uh, who's a professor of theology and philosophy at Yale University, says this, and I love it. He says, if God loves a human being with a love that bestows such great worth on that human being, other creatures, if they knew about that love, would be envious. So first and foremost, when we wrestle with this idea of the image of God, the first thing I want you to hear is that because God has made you in his image and likeness, you can rest in God's love for you, that you matter to him. He knows you. He cares about you deeply 
You are his most treasured possession. And some of us just need to receive that truth this morning, that your life matters. That God knows you and loves you, not because of anything you've done or where you've been or what you've accomplished or how hard you tried, but simply because you are. You are loved by God. Let's move one step outward when we think about the implications of this doctrine of Imago Dei. First, it has to do with the way that we see and treat ourselves, but let's move one step outward, and it also informs the way that we see and treat others. Not only am I made in God's image and likeness, but so are you, and you, and you, and every single person that you will ever meet. You know, it's interesting when God commands his people to not make any idols or graven images to worship in his place, the reason he says, don't make an image of me, it's the same word. It's because he has already made an image of himself. And it's the person who lives next door to you. It's the person who works at the desk across from you. It's even the person that shares the bed with you at night. God says, don't make an image of me because I've already made one. And it's called your neighbor. C.S. Lewis once wrote that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object that will ever be presented to your senses. And so as followers of Jesus, who are part of this long story, as those who affirm the image and likeness of God, not only in ourselves, but in every person we would ever meet, this would cause us to have extra motivation and extra clarity and extra compassion on those around us. This makes sense of Jesus' command that we would learn to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This would make sense of Jesus' command who says, when you care for the least of these, when you love those around you, when you meet the needs of your neighbors, you are caring for me. You are loving me. Whatever you do for them, you've done unto me. Because every person you'll ever meet is made in the image and likeness of God. Let's move out a step further. Instead of just our individual and personal relationships, let's think about our ethical imagination, if you will. The way that we see ourselves operating within this huge world that God loves and is redeeming. The concept of the image of God has deeply and radically shaped the Christian ethical imagination for centuries now. It gives us a rock-solid reason to affirm that every single human being, every single life is worthy of love and dignity, is to be protected and cherished and treated with respect. In moments like the one we're finding ourselves living, where there are different slogans and different chants and different movements 
to affirm the value or the personhood of various groups of people. These things we know can be incredibly contentious and divisive. But as Christians, we would be among the very first to say whatever group of people we're talking about, and specifically those whose lives have been overlooked, those whose rights are not being protected, those whose stories is one of oppression or inequality, yes, their lives matter, and we're not afraid to say so. In the wake of George Floyd several months ago, I was having coffee with a good friend of mine who's an atheist, and he and I were finding common value in um, asking what we can do to be part of this movement that's announcing and reclaiming the dignity and value of black lives. And we have the kind of conversation where we're able to get deep beneath the surface into one another's worldview and kind of poke at each other. And I asked my friend, as an atheist, tell me why you think black lives matter. And we've talked about this enough for him to know what I was really asking. Meaning if there is no God and if there is no moral foundation to the universe and if there is no rhyme or reason or intelligent design or, or in a creator in whose image we are all made, then isn't this all just survival of the fittest? And what is our moral obligation or duty to affirm the value or dignity of another human life. Tell me, as an atheist, why do you think black lives matter? And I love this guy and his intellectual honesty. He would have, he said, I've thought about this a lot, and to the tell you the truth, I don't have a good answer for it. I just choose to believe that they do. And as we continued to talk, he was able to say, I wish that I had a belief like you do. I wish I had a faith in a God who has claimed to make every human being in his image and likeness because that would give a logical reason to affirm the dignity of human life. But he simply says, I don't know, but I choose to believe it. As followers of Jesus... We, more than anybody in the rest of the world, in the rest of the creation, have the best reasons to affirm the dignity of black lives or of any other groups to which there's violence done, to which there is injustice, to those who are hurting, to those who are grieving. We do not hesitate to affirm their value and their dignity and to fight for it. I'm going to keep pushing it though. I want to press on a little bit further and ask how else would our belief in the image of God shape our ethical imagination and maybe even begin to inform our political ideology and our views and our engagement. The foundation of Dr. King's theology and philosophy in the civil rights movement 
was the Imago Day. And much of what we would call human rights, this concept prevalent in Western civilization, is founded in the concept of the Imago Day. But I want to ask the question, what happens in a society that is quote-unquote evolving beyond the belief in God? What happens in a culture that not only denies the existence of a creator who made humans in his, be- in his image and likeness, what happens in a culture that no longer holds to this innate dignity and worth of the human soul? What does that mean in the pursuit of this thing called human rights? In other words, if humans aren't made in the image of God, what makes them worthy of being protected? Ron and others have wrestled with this. I've read deeply on this at times. And the best answer that anyone's been able to come up with is that humans have rights because of what's often referred to as human capacities. Because humans have the capacity for things like reasoning and making choices and having preferences and making moral discernments, because humans have these capacities, therefore, humans are valuable. If we were pressed in a non-theistic or an atheistic worldview to say, why is a human life more valuable than the life of a ladybug? We would end up arguing something along these lines because of human capacity. For preference, for moral distinction, for desire, for reason. And it sounds like a pretty good answer until you realize there's a major problem here. That if human life is only valuable because of human capacity, then what does that mean about humans with limited capacities? Here's how this problem comes to the surface in the world we live in today. We're going to talk about abortion. One of the most well-known philosophers alive today is a professor at Princeton named Peter Singer. Peter Singer holds to a view called utilitarianism, which says that human capacity is the foundation for human rights. And so in 1973, when the Supreme Court legalized abortion, Peter Singer has no problem with that because the life in the womb doesn't have capacities. The life in the womb can't reason. It can't make choices. It can't discern right from wrong. Therefore, Singer and many others would argue, therefore, since that life doesn't have capacities, it doesn't have rights. Now, Singer and everyone else would affirm that that is a human life, They have no problem saying that. They're just saying it's not a human life that yet has rights. So, therefore, terminating a pregnancy would not be a violation of human rights. 
If that's true, then you have to keep something in mind. Because, yeah, unborn humans do not have what we think of as human capacities. But there's lots of other humans that don't either. What about newborn babies? They can't reason or make choices. What about those who are elderly with dementia or Alzheimer's? What about those with severe intellectual disabilities? None of those people possess the capacity that would entitle them to human rights within a utilitarian view of the world. So therefore, according to Peter Singer, we, if we don't need to protect the rights of the unborn, then we don't need to protect the rights of any human that lacks mental, moral, personal, or social capacities. He is out front, outspoken about these claims. These are his conclusions, and it goes without saying, it's not real popular. Meaning <clears throat> that obviously for those who oppose abortion, they would have problems with it, but even those who support the practice or the option of, of abortion have problems with it. And the reason is, because his argument holds water. Because it is logically consistent. If you believe that an unborn human has no rights, then you have no basis to argue that anyone else lacking human capacities has rights either. So, where would that lead us? In 2011, a couple of Peter Singer's bioethicist colleagues published a paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics entitled, After Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? Let me read just a paragraph from their abstract, their thesis. They write, abortion is largely accepted even for reasons that don't have anything to do with the fetus's health. By showing that both fetuses and newborns do not have the same moral status as actual persons, secondly, the fact that both are potential persons is morally irrelevant, and thirdly, adoption is not always in the best interest of actual people, the authors argue that what we call afterbirth abortion should be permissible in all the cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. That's their abstract. And this is where the utilitarian foundation for human rights logically concludes. This is where it has to go, that rights are based on capacities. Singer has come to these same conclusions and has clearly said that until a baby is four to five months old, it lacks the capacity for reason, morality, and preference, and therefore has the exact same status as an unborn baby within its mother's womb. It's offensive to the heart, but it's logical. That's what happens when you get rid of the doctrine of the image of God. Human life has no inherent value in and of itself. 
And so babies, the elderly, those with disabilities have no rights. But there's another thing we need to talk about in this conversation. Because I've only offended half of you so far, and I'd hate to leave the job half done. The doctrine of the image of God motivates us to show compassion to the unborn, and it also calls us to show compassion towards the women who find themselves in situations where they are considering abortion, and to the women that have had abortions. And while it's true that some women use abortion as a form of birth control, most, the vast majority of women who have had abortions have done so because they truly believe they have no better option. I've been a pastor for 22 years. I've been involved in a broad spectrum of stories involving women and their parents or their boyfriends or their husbands making these decisions about what to do with the life in their womb. And just from my personal experience, here's what I can tell you. That sometimes we're talking about a teenage girl whose parents make the decision for her. And she has no say in the matter. Sometimes you're talking about a married woman whose husband is demanding that she terminates her pregnancy or else he's going to leave her and their other kids. I've sat in the room for these conversations. Sometimes it's a college student who's been assaulted and raped and gotten pregnant. Sometimes it's a woman who's already working two to three jobs, providing for two to three kids, and there's just no way she can carry this child to full term and support another kid. And other times, and I would even say oftentimes in my experience, it's a Christian woman who's not married but gets pregnant, and is so scared of being judged and criticized and condemned and excluded from her church, from her Christian community, that she chooses an abortion to avoid shaming from the body of Christ. Over half the women in our country who obtain abortions identify as Christians. These are terrible, impossible situations to find yourself in. And I'm aware that many in this space have faced these kinds of challenges and decisions yourselves. And while, in my opinion, none of these circumstances would validate the act of abortion, they should cause us as followers of Jesus, as the church, to rise to the occasion and to advocate for these women with compassion and love. 
And we need to own the fact that as Christians, with a propensity to be judgmental and exclusive, we are complicit and partly responsible for many of the unborn lives that have been lost. That is on us. And so, yes, we care for, we love, we protect, and we champion the rights of unborn humans. And we also love, care for, protect, and champion the rights of those women who find themselves in such difficult circumstances. We do not get to pick and choose who bears the image of God. He's already made that determination for us. Every single human bears his image and likeness. And as the church, we have the invitation to figure out how to live as servants of all. Here's how this played out in the early church. We aren't the first generation of Christians to wrestle with these kinds of tensions. The first community of Christ followers within the Greco-Roman world, just like our society, human rights were based on capacities. Their culture was deeply shaped by the belief that there were some who were born inherently inferior to others based on what we would call their race or their background or something like that. So in the Greco-Roman world, You had slavery, you had terrible poverty, you had lots of abortion and infanticide, especially among baby girls, and you had the sick and the elderly who were often deserted and left to die. All of this was legal and considered standard practice in the world in which the Church of Jesus first bloomed. Then the first Christians come along, And they believe in the doctrine of the image of God, which causes them to live radically differently. To see their neighbors and specifically those with limited capacities as those worthy to be loved and protected. And so the first Christians were opposed to abortion and infanticide from the beginning. But hear me say this. They were not what we might call single-issue people. They had a largely consistent ethic of life. They cared for the unborn, and they also cared for the poor, and they also cared for the sick, and for the elderly, and those with disabilities. They often, the early church often went without food so that they could feed others. They were champions for the rights of women. When a woman would become a widow in the Greco-Roman world, she would essentially lose her place in society. Her identity and her source of security was gone, and she would then be forced to marry someone else just so she could survive. It was Christians that came along and supported these widows and said, you don't have to get married unless you want to because we're going to provide for you. Early Christians, when there were young children or infants that were abandoned or orphaned or left to die, 
It was Christians that would go out and take them in and care for them as their own. Because when you believe in the image of God, the circle of protected life expands. In this politically charged, culturally divided moment we find ourselves in. Some of us are trying to figure out, do I lean right, do I lean left? How do I vote when it comes to this issue or whatever it is? And what I'm trying to say in the midst of this First Allegiance initiative is that for those whose primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and for those whose first allegiance is to Jesus, we are not going to fit nicely into any of the boxes that the world wants to put us in. I don't know if the image of God makes us pro-choice or pro-life. It makes us pro-human. And it would cause us, it should cause us, to live as a radically different expression of humanity here in our city and wherever else we find ourselves around the world. And the last thing I would say on that before we close is that for many of us, when we throw around these labels of pro-choice or pro-life, what are we talking about? Well, in reality, all we're talking about is which box you check once every four years. And as followers of Jesus who are giving ourselves to the image of God, to loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. I don't think we can check a box and truly say that we're pro-life if we are not radically loving, serving, sacrificing, giving, emptying, pouring ourselves out for those who need love the most. This is why, if you don't know, among the many efforts that Antioch has given ourselves to in the areas of justice and compassion, caring for orphans and widows is at the top of that list. As a community, the resources, the time, the money, and the, the energy that we devote towards aiding those who are fostering children who have no home, aiding those who are adopting children into their own families, to caring for those who feel like they have no other options. This is central to our commitment and our vision of what it means to be a church that's all about justice. And so we have this, not just opportunity, but church, we have an obligation to be the body of Jesus here in Bend in this moment, to reject the labels and the boxes, the divisive partisanship, the catchphrases and the slogans. We are here to bear witness to another kingdom and to love our neighbors, the unborn, the desperate and vulnerable women.
and all of those who need love the most. This is our job. And the truth is, we haven't always done it very well. And we can sit in a moment like this and feel shame or guilt or condemnation or something like that. And that would not be the way to end this conversation. We don't go love and serve and care for our neighbors out of guilt or shame, but we love because we have been loved. See, we are called to bear the image of God, but starting with the first humans, Adam and Eve, and all the way till us today, every single one of us has failed to do that well. That image is broken and fractured in us because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our insistence that we ourselves be the center of our universe, not God. And we're committed to making an image of ourselves that we would worship. And so all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God except for one. There is one man who has perfectly borne the image and likeness of God, and that is Jesus himself. Paul calls him the image of the invisible. And he is redeeming us. He is forgiving us. He is loving us. He is discipling us. And he is forming us through his Holy Spirit to become people who once again can bear that image to God in worship, to one another in fellowship, and to the world in sacrificial service and love. And so in this teaching in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus says, look at the birds, look at the lilies. If God cares for them, how much more does he care for you? So don't worry about your life. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice. And all these things will be added unto you. We join me in prayer. Amy will come and lead us to the table. Our Father God, we confess and we repent of all the ways that we have failed to celebrate, to protect, to affirm your image and likeness in ourselves and in one another. And I pray that with the rush of power of your Holy Spirit, with a conviction in our hearts, with a love that only you can give us, that you would have mercy and hear our prayers, and that you would transform us into people who bear the image of Jesus as he bears your image, God. We want to be your people in the world. And we know that puts us at a place where we're going to get criticism from both sides. Where we're going to feel homeless and vulnerable and lost at times. And I pray that in those moments, we would find our home in you. Our identity 
and our worth as those who bear your image and those in whom your image is being restored and redeemed. Lord Jesus, make us like your son that the world may know. In Jesus' name.